You all are an amazing church. 100% by his grace. By the spirit. Wow. I don't even feel like preaching. So let's just go ahead and pray and <laughs> go ahead home, watch the games. I'm a Skins fan, but I love NFL football playoffs, though, so I'm going to watch the games. Yeah, we're going to be all right. Kendrick said it. Jesus said it, so I'm good with it. All right. Last week, I presented a view of the Bible that is different than how most people explain what the Bible is. The reason I presented the Bible that way is because of two things that I said in the Supernatural Storyline of the Bible series that our church did last year into this year. The first thing I said was this. The best theology that I have ever read is too man-centered. I've read a lot of good theology, but it's very man-centered. And what I mean is that the Bible, for many of us, we process the Bible about what God has done for us. Everything is about what happened to us, how much God loves us, what God has done for us. And we treat the Bible like God didn't do anything for himself and we can even become bored with the Bible because we're trying to figure out if this doesn't talk about me, then I don't necessarily want to read it. But everything in the Bible isn't about us, and everything done by God wasn't for us. God's glory is the ultimate reason why he does anything. The second thing that I said was that you do not fully understand the Bible unless you understand the main storyline of the Bible, which is God against the gods. That may shock some of you. The main storyline of the Bible is not our salvation. Our salvation is a result of God going against the other supernatural beings, the cosmic powers of darkness that turned against him. There is much going on in the scriptures that is more than just how much God loves us. And so the Trinitarian view of the Bible that I taught last week comes out of these premises. That there's more than just what God did for us. And that the main storyline of the Bible is God against the gods and we are a product of that. You might remember on, in John 12, Jesus said, I'm paraphrasing, he said, now is the judgment of this world and the ruler of this world will be cast out, talking about Satan, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So from Jesus' perspective, the cross was, let's cast out the ruler of this world. And as a result of that, people will come to me and believe in me. His priorities were right. I feel like our biblical priorities need to be the same. So the Trinitarian view of the Bible comes out of this reality. It's the Bible according to what God is doing for himself, his agenda. 
It's not necessarily ultimately about us. Also said last week that the point about the Bible and the way it was organized was my deepest point, but that I had to skip it because of time. I had to skip a lot of it. Afterwards, in a conversation with a few people on Sunday, there was a mini petition for me to fill out that point about the Trinitarian view of the Bible. I was getting texts, phone calls, people after church. I was encouraged, but also felt swallowed up. If I felt like I was in a, a, a time of swallowing. I was overwhelmed. I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. I had to say <laughs> felt swallowed up. So out of the goodness of my heart, no, I feel like the Lord was like, you need to do this. So I'm going to explain in more detail what I mean by the Trinitarian view of the Bible and get to say the things that I could not say last week. I don't have to repeat much of what I said last week because it's deep enough that there's more. So let me say two things. For those that were here for the supernatural storyline of the Bible, this overlap today should be a helpful connection for you. For those that were not here, I pray that this doesn't go over your head. I apologize in advance because I don't have time to explain all the nuances to help you get it. But I hope that what I'm saying will help you understand this. But we are going to get deep today. So buckle up. Let's begin with a phrase that I said multiple times during the supernatural storyline of the Bible. God is intentional. Every detail matters, some more than others. God is intentional. Every detail matters. Everything in his word matters to him. But some things matter more than others. But God is intentional. Let's begin by restating the premise of the Trinitarian view of the Bible that I said last week. I said that the Bible is divided from God's perspective, the way he organized the Bible. It's not just 66 books. It's not based on the literature style, whether it's the, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, and the wisdom literature, and the history, and the major and minor prophets, and the New Testament, the Gospels, Acts, the Epistles. And the, that's how we understand it, and that's true. But from God's perspective, I believe he laid it out in three acts. Act one is the Old Testament that emphasizes the person, God the Father. Act two is the Gospels. It emphasizes God the Son. Acts three is Acts through Jude emphasizing God the Spirit. Though all three persons of the Godhead show up in each act. The Holy Spirit is in Act one. Jesus is in Act one. They're all in Act two. At Jesus' baptism, all three show up. He's baptized, the spirit comes like a dove, the father says, this is my son. They're there, but the emphasis is on a particular person of the Godhead. And act three is the spirit. I said last week that there was a pattern in each act that is essentially identical, and that's true, but it's not exactly the same. The pattern are more distinctives of each act rather than the actual pattern. This is what I said to you last week. That in each act, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Old Testament, Gospels, New Testament, that one person of the Trinity will be the dominant emphasis. Each act has a main theme. 
The one person that is emphasized will point to the other two. Each person's job is to primarily glorify the person of emphasis from the previous act. So Jesus says, I'm here to glorify the Father. The Spirit is there to glorify Jesus. In each act, it will highlight the next person of the Trinity, particularly at the end of its act, so that Scripture shifts in Trinitarian emphasis. So remember, I said to you, Zechariah and Malachi are the last two books of the Old Testament. In Zechariah 12.10, remember we read this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weeping bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. In Zechariah, the second to the last book of the Bible, God is saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit. So he's pointing to the person in Act 3. Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi 3, says this, Behold, I send my messenger, referring to John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So you see, in the last book of the Bible, or the Old Testament is pointing to the Son, the next person, the next emphasis in Act 2, Jesus. This is the way God organizes the Bible. And then Jesus, at the end of his life, points to the Spirit. In John 14 and 16, he says, look, I got to go, but I'm going to send to you the Helper. He's going to come. Jesus said, if I don't go, he doesn't come. But I need, I need to go so that he comes. It wasn't just that he needed to come. This is the way God designed the Bible and the way that God, the Trinity, was going to act in the confines of human history. Once, you're, once, once they point to that, the next person, the emphasis switches, and the next person of the Trinity is the main focus. And the theme from the previous act carries over to the next act for continuity's sake. That way, all three are equally important, and they share the same characteristics, proving them to be God. This is the pattern in each act. Last week, I broke this down. However, there's a deeper reality. There's a deeper reality. You cannot understand this reality unless you understand what I mean by God against the gods is the main theme, storyline of the Bible. Our salvation is a consequence of this storyline. Let me explain. If you were here for the supernatural storyline of the Bible, we talked about this concept, biblical concept, that's called the divine council, right? The divine council are essentially supernatural beings that God has created that he convenes with. So all these supernatural beings are created by God, and God has authority over these beings, and they sometimes work with God to, to exercise things in humanity. Here's a perfect example of this scene, 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23. And Micaiah said this, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fail at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? 
And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you ought to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. This scene will rock you if you always think that it's only God, only the devil, only Satan, and only demons. This is a conversation that God let us see and how things work in the world that we know exists but do not see. We got to peek into the immaterial world and see God sitting on the throne. All these supernatural beings are there. And God is like, all right, who's up? Who's going to attack Ahab? In our minds, we just think God just thinks it. Like I dream a genie, if you know that, clink, clink, and then all of a sudden it just happens. I dated myself, I dream a genie. I know some of y'all are like, what? Y'all know what Aladdin is. We groan around here. Some of us are grown. We groan. Some of us know what we're talking about. You see the similarity in Job. The sons of God, the angels are appearing before God, and Satan comes there, right? This is the standard practice that we don't see. There are supernatural beings that are submitted. First of all, all beings are submitted to God. Satan needed God's permission to attack them. That's the way that it functions. And so we don't see this. We understand this backward. Not, we call it spiritual warfare. Appropriately so. But there are supernatural beings that are primarily in the immaterial world, but what they do plays out in our world. In fact, supernatural beings started what we now call spiritual warfare. Case in point, the fall, the Garden of Eden. Sin comes into the world for two reasons. We're taught Adam and Eve bit the fruit, 100% true. But they also were tempted by a supernatural being. It is reasonable to believe that had Satan not tempted Adam and Eve, they wouldn't have disobeyed God. There's no biblical exegetical evidence that they were desiring to do that apart from being coerced by a supernatural being to do it. So sin comes into the world not because Adam and Eve got up one day and decided, let's disobey God, but because a supernatural being that disobeyed God wanted them to join him. And they fell. Satan drew first blood. Sin comes into the world, and we struggle with this because a supernatural being intervened and tempted Adam and Eve. Starting what we now call spiritual warfare. These are the only creatures that we know of. There's a lot of creatures that we hear being made by God. We know all creatures are made by God. Humanity are the only creatures that I'm aware of in any credible translation of the Bible that are made in God's image. So he tempts them, they fall. Supernatural influence. So God responds to Satan's declaration of war with a promise to end it. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Here's what God says. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Theologically, this is called the Proto-Evangelium. It means the first gospel, because the he, singular, spoiler alert, is Jesus. 
And this is the beginning of spiritual warfare. It begins. This he is coming, and the rest of the Bible is, everyone's waiting. Who is the he? Who is he? The next assault from supernatural beings we see comes from Genesis 6. We read this, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and also afterward when the Son of God when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were called the mighty men of old, the men of renown. We talked about this in the supernatural storyline, so I'm not going to explain why, but I, I, I explained why I believe the term sons of God almost always refers to angels in the Old Testament. So there are other, the other explanations of what this means. Sons of God to me is angels, and I explained what that means. So what, what this means is that angels, supernatural beings, left heaven, married women, had children. Those, those children became giants called the Nephilim. So God destroys the world minus Noah and his family with the flood, with water. But as punishment for the angels who sinned, God put some of them in gloomy darkness and chains, as Second Peter tells us, and Jude tells us. But he also, as we read and looked at, made the disembodied spirits of their children, the Nephilim, demons and unclean spirits. That challenged some of us because we've always been taught that demons are fallen angels. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that. In fact, Revelation 12, 7 through 9, is one place that proves the point. It says this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. There was no longer a place for them in heaven. And the dragon, and, and, he, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Not his demons, his angels. They're not called demons. When God creates something, it stays that it was created. So even though people are made in the image of God, people reject God, you're still made in the image of God. That doesn't change. But you have to believe in Jesus in order to spend eternity with God. That's what changed. But everyone's still made in the image of God, no matter what you believe, no matter what your sexuality is, no matter what your religion is, every single person is made in the image of God. That doesn't change because of sin. Angels don't change who they are. But they're still angels. And I think God keeps that name so he can... When they're punished for that, this is how I made you. You were an angel. Your identity doesn't change. Your destination does. The next thing we see is the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Humanity is unified under one language and one singular focus. And so God looks down and says, look, I got to do something about these folks. Says, look, I'm going to change the language because they're trying to build a structure up to the sky. And because they're united... Nothing will be able to stop them. That's what we read. But Deuteronomy 32, looking back at the Tower of Babel, gives us more information about what happened, right? Here's Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, that's the only time in the Bible that we know of he divided mankind, at least up to this point. When he divided mankind, 
since he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Here's what that means. Most theologians think this, and I would agree, and I taught this in the supernatural line of the Bible. That it wasn't just God changed the language, but he divided up humanity based on those languages and, and let supernatural beings oversee different people groups. So he divided up mankind and fixed the borders according to the numbers of the sons of God. Sons of God always means angels, at least in the Old Testament, unless it specifically says they're human beings. God didn't just change languages. He divided up humanity and gave supernatural beings jurisdiction over those people groups in Genesis 11. Then we get to Genesis 12, 356 years in human history. That means that all those supernatural beings had 356 years of creating their own narratives, teaching people to not worship Yahweh, worship God, but to worship them. And so now you have all these religions everywhere. These guys that are overseeing humanity created false narratives, and these false narratives rival God. So God begins identifying himself in a way that's not necessary if there are no other gods. He begins identifying himself as God Most High. God's names are names of distinction. I am not like them. They can't say God Most High because they're below me. We saw this in Deuteronomy 8. We just read it. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind, fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the first time it comes up is just after he calls Abram to himself. Genesis 14 is the first time you see this term, and this is a term of distinction. Because it's 356 years plus in human history, and now all these false narratives and other religions have existed. All these Mesopotamian religions existed. He says this in Genesis 14, beginning in verse 18 through 20. He says, and the Kizildek, it's a cool name, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed them and said, blessed be Abram by God most high professor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. We see this in Numbers 24, 15. And he took up, this is disclosure, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and, and knows the knowledge of the most high, who sees the vision of the almighty. You see all these different names, right? The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who has the knowledge of the most high, who sees the vision of the Almighty. These names are God's names by distinction separating himself from the other gods that exist. The Most High is a distinguishing name. Or you get language like this, the God of your fathers, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does he just say God? Because there's too many other gods. So he's distinguishing himself as, no, 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 no. I'm not them. I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the most high. I'm the almighty. When we get to Revelation, I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm not like these guys. They can't claim to be the most high. They can't claim to be the beginning and the end. Because I would say prove it. He's the most high and he intends to prove it in the scriptures which correspond to human history. God against the gods is the major theme in the Bible. It's the major storyline. And we are the drop-down menu. 
Our salvation is the result of supernatural influence to humanity. God doesn't need to save us if we don't sin. We don't sin if a supernatural being tempts us to do so. And by us, I mean Adam and Eve. Psalm 82 is another God letting us peek into the window of the immaterial world. Psalm 82, verses 1 and 8, here's what it says. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long, God talking to the other gods, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You see, God gave them jurisdiction, and this is what they were supposed to do. Verse 5, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. Oh, if I had time, I would develop that. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High. I created you. You're God, sons of me. But because you've done what he says, all of you, you're sons of the most, verse 6, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die or fall like any prince. Why? Because you've taught these people to worship everything but me. The divine counsel is a reality. And supernatural beings have rebelled against God, and we find ourselves in a place where we call spiritual warfare. And God is fighting against these gods. This is the behind-the-scenes reality. This is why when we get to Ephesians 6.12, we hear, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers. These are all supernatural beings, supernatural entities, rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is New Testament, post-resurrection theology. This is what we live. Even though Jesus died and had the victory, Paul calls this place a present darkness. God against the gods is the primary storyline of the Bible. Everything else falls underneath this. If you do not understand that, you will still benefit greatly from your Bible, but you will miss something. And if you do not understand that, you will become bored with your Bible because you won't realize that it's not really about what God is doing for you. It's about what God is doing against the gods, and you're included. We're included. So I can read anything because I want to know what's happening here. But if I think, well, how does this apply to me? I'm not reading the majority of the Old Testament. And I'm only reading. So, you know what? Y'all ever seen them little Bibles that they give where it has Psalms, Proverbs, and the New Testament? Y'all know why you get them Bibles? That's like the new Jefferson Bible, right? They give you those because they think these are the only books that apply to you. This is the only thing that matters to you. The rest of the Bible, you don't need to read that. Psalms, Proverbs, and then the New Testament. And they have these Bibles. Oh, this is my favorite Bible. It's missing like 41 books. Everything isn't about us. God against the gods is about him. They rebelled against him first. Last week I stated that each act has a person of emphasis, a major theme, and a goal. There are two other characteristics I need to mention that we're going to look at today. There's a motive, which is usually the same in each act. And the motive is usually this, to demonstrate that God is the superior being in, in relation to how humanity worships. 
You understand what I mean in a second. The, the, the fifth thing, so we have a person of emphasis, a major theme, a goal, a motive, and then a method. The way God fights and gets the gods is different in Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. Different. You ever wonder, like, why? When Jesus comes up, there are a lot of people that don't worship him to worship other gods. Why isn't he telling believers to kill other people like God said that in the Old Testament? Why did God tell Israel, go in and wipe out all these people, but he doesn't say that in the New Testament? We'll talk about it. There's a reason that the method changes. So here's the process in each act. A person of emphasis in the Godhead, a major theme, a goal, a motive, and a method. And then all the other things I said about make sure that each person, those are all distinctives. But the actual process is a person of emphasis, a major theme, a goal, a motive, and a method. Last week we looked at the person of emphasis, major theme, and, and goals. We're going to look at motive and method mostly today. Let's go to Act 1. The Father, Old Testament. The, the theme is glory or worship. The goal is to reclaim the glory that the cosmic powers of darkness took in humanity's worship. His motive is to demonstrate that God is the superior supernatural being in the Old Testament. And the method is always based on how humanity worships the gods. So in the Old Testament, God establishes a people that worships him, and then he goes to war and destroys. His method is to destroy the persona of the gods. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. Let's add verse 9. Verses 8 and 9. Look at verse, let's look at verses 8 and 9. Deuteronomy 32, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So you see, after God divided up humanity and gave all humanity to all different supernatural beings, he said, Jacob, I'm going I'm to create a new people group. He said, Jacob will be my heritage. And we know Jacob is Israel. That's what he does. He establishes a covenant with a new people group through a man called Abram who would become Abraham. Genesis 15, 5 and 6 says this, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. Over time, this, this promise became a man named Jacob Jacob had 12 sons, and those people became millions of people called the Israelites. And they were forced into slavery by the Egyptians for 400 years, and then God shows up and declares war. Here's what we read in Exodus 12, verses 12 through 14. You're going to see the goal, the method, and the motive, all in this, these three verses. Here's what God is telling Moses. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So here's the goal. God's going to reclaim his glory from the gods so that humanity, humanity worships the one true God. Here's his method. I'm going to establish a people group who are going to worship me and work through you. And here's his motive. I'm doing this because I am the Lord. I am the superior supernatural being. And now the greatest nation in the world is about to be introduced to me. Not like they had him with all the other plagues. But this one was different. He's reclaiming his glory. The book of Exodus is the beginning of the action of God against the gods. It's the beginning. But Exodus 12, 12 is when God states it plainly. This is what I'm doing. I'm destroying them. I'm not here to, to talk about, well, we can, you know, we can share space. and I'm not here to share my glory. I'm not here to share worship. You stole worship from me, I'm taking it back. But I'm not going to use those people. I'm going to create a new people. I'm going to rescue them from slavery, and then they're going to worship me. So that's what he does. He brings them through the Red Sea, appearing as a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. Let me ask you this question, this real question. Have you ever asked yourself, why does God appear the way he does in the Old Testament? Why is it always supernatural? Why is it always in a cloud? voice trembling, people afraid. Remember that time we heard that sonic boom that one time? People was like, oh man, what was that? That's nothing. Can you imagine hearing the voice of God? We were all worried about a sonic boom. We was on the news and all that. Man, they, I didn't know why them people in Sinai was like, hey look Moses, we ain't trying to go near the mountain man. You go and we'll just wait way over here. I got your back way back that way. Why does Jesus appear as a human but is described as the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord, we know, is Jesus in the Old Testament, but he does stuff like go up in a flame and go up. Why is it always so supernatural? Why doesn't God just show up and be like, hey, nice to meet y'all. Saved you. God told Moses, you can't even see my face. Why does this happen? Why does God appear like that in the Old Testament? And why does he appear as a man in the New Testament? Why is the mode different? Because God always comes in conjunction with the way humanity worships the gods. Let me explain what I mean. Some of you are like, where are you going with this, Pastor Kurt? I don't know, Pastor Kurt. I'm not sure. I'm with you. Well, I was with you. After going through the Red Sea, Moses, or sometimes people say Miriam, wrote a worship song that everyone is singing. And it's in Exodus 15. Here's what verse 11 says. I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. Don't make me laugh. Here's what it says. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? In Exodus 18, verses 10 and 11, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, is encouraged by what he sees the Lord doing. And it says this, beginning in verse 10, 10, 11, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. 
because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. The Israelites worship gods as supernatural beings, and so does the rest of humanity. The way people worship in the Old Testament is connected to a view of gods as supernatural beings that are in control of earthly domain. That's how humanity is worshiping. God is going to reclaim worship. So God appears in the way that humanity worships supernatural beings. God appears and stays a supernatural being to show that he is the superior supernatural being. That's how he appears. We know this story. This is a comical story in 1 Kings 18. It's a comical story. 18, 25 through 29. This is Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? One of my favorite stories. I, w- I, could, I wish I was there. I'm actually, I don't know if the Lord would do this, but when we die and get to heaven, I'm going to ask, can you take me back to that scene and let me just show up and just watch how they went down? I love this scene. It says this, and Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around, <laughs> limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or relieving himself. In other words, he's using the bathroom right now. We'll get right back to it. That's what he's saying. He's, he's, he's using the bathroom. He'll be right back. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And this is this. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved until the time of the afternoon of the ablation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Humanity worships gods as supernatural beings that they think intervene in our world. So God says, to reclaim my glory, I'm going to show up as a supernatural being and intervene in your world the way you worship other gods. And I'm going to do it in such a way that you will know that I am the superior supernatural being that should be worshipped. So God says, that's why we're doing like that's why Jesus shows up as the angel of the Lord. They know he's like, man, he was a man, but he was it was something about him. And he goes up and does all these supernatural things. And Joshua, in, in Judges 6, Gideon brings him some food, and he says, Look, pour the broth over, pour the soup over the meat and bread that you made. Then he touches it with his staff and it burns up. Then he rises up and even though they saw him as a man, he functions supernaturally. Because that is the mode in which humanity worships. And in each act, he's going to show up in the mode that humanity worships to reclaim his glory. God against the gods is such a concern for him and such a major theme for him that we see in Exodus 20, the first commandment is what? Wow, in a room full of Christians, it was real, it was real silent around this joint. <laughs> Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. And God spoke all these words. This is his first commandment to the people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. Major concern to God. 
do not worship other gods. That's the thing I care about the most. Do not worship other gods. After this commandment, hundreds of verses of him saying this. Let's look at a few. Exodus 23, 31 to 33. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. See? They shall not dwell in your land. Why? Lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Leviticus 19 and 4. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 12, 2. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall possess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills under every green tree. Joshua 23, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right and to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. Judges 2.17, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. 1 Samuel 7.3, and Samuel called, said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away all the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him daily and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. This was the primary concern for God. Do not worship other gods. Why? Because I am fighting against those gods. The prohibitions against marrying outside of their eth ethnicity was, not, was due to worshiping other gods. Judges 3, 5 through 8. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. There's a lot of ites around this one. And their, and their daughters, they took for themselves wives. And their own daughters, they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. The kingdom of Israel was split because Solomon, the king, did the very thing. First Kings 11, verses 1 through 4. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. They just named all. I wanted to make sure you know that they meant all women. And he says, look, they loved all these women. And verse 6, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. God said, you can turn your heart away. God against the gods is the dominant theme in the Old Testament and the rest of the Bible. And in Act 1, It plays out as God staying in supernatural form because that's the way humanity worships. To reclaim his glory and dominance over those gods, his method is to destroy the persona, the very idea of those gods. And he does it by choosing a small group of people, bringing them into the land and killing these people. Now many of us We've heard people say, man, how could God do that? Why would God do that? Because we're thinking about humanity versus humanity. But when you think God against the gods, for God to bring people in to kill those people, if you kill those people, then you kill the idea of the gods that they worship. Yeah. Yeah. If God were to do it in the immaterial world, who would know? Yeah. 
How would we know? Oh, your God, Baal, I destroyed. For real, where? Where was that? Oh, was that why it was raining and then and it was sunny out? Was that what we, is that what the thunderstorm was? How would we know? God says, okay, you worship supernatural beings. I'm going to destroy those beings by destroying the people that those beings, that worship those beings. We don't have to agree with it, but this is the mode of the way God interacts. Because if I kill those people groups, then the gods they worship disappear. Can anybody name what the god of the Ammonites were? Can anybody name what any god in the Old Testament was? Maybe a couple. If I said, do you know who the god of the Sidonites was? The Hivites, the Jebel, all the names, do you know who their gods were? Those people groups don't exist. And guess what? Neither do their gods. All of this, look at this, all of this happens in one, one verse, one, one, one passage. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 9. Listen to what God says here. All of it plays out in this verse, these verses. Beginning verse 1 through 9. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of and then clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, y'all know who the gods are, the Amorites, the Canaanites. Y'all might know who the Canaanites God is. The Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show them, show them no mercy to them. Why? Because, look what it says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So you see the connection? Gods, because you'll worship those gods. We're going to destroy those gods to get rid of the very persona of those gods. Reason. This is how God works in nature. These people worship these gods, and I am at war with those gods, so I am at war with those people. Authority, I'm the supreme supernatural being because the smallest people group in the world is winning. Look at verse 7 of Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Listen to that. You were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. You were the fewest of all peoples. But when, because you're with me and I'm the supreme being, what I do is going to threaten everybody else. So when they get to the Jericho, Rahab is like, hey, listen. Uh, we heard about y'all. We, we heard about your God. And they said, go back and read that. It said, everybody's heart melted. Dudes was like, did y'all hear what the God of those little people group Israelites did? They were like, fam, all of the Egyptians went through the Red Sea and then the water closed and killed all of them. And they were sitting there singing about it. Rahab was like, we melted when we heard about y'all. But they're the smallest group. Why? Because God is fighting against the gods. And he's using this small people group because he wants to show, oh, I'm a supreme being. I don't need hundreds of thousands of people. Why do you think Gideon had 300 people fighting over 120,000? Gideon, 300 people fought 120,000. Hey, God, come on, God. Well, of course they tired. <laughs> they was tired afterwards. They fought 120,000, 300. Why? Supreme being. I'm going to go in and kill these people because it's killing these gods. The very idea, the persona of these gods 
is gone. So in Act 1, you got God the Father from the go to war and destroy those gods with those people, the persona of them, the beings, I'm going to be supernatural. It's the blueprint for each act. So what happens in that head is Jesus, in the gospel, Jesus. Same pattern. Person of the Godhead is Jesus. And the gospel is about Jesus, the son. The major theme is truth. The goal is to reclaim from the cosmic powers of darkness and refocus the glory. The motive, to be known that the Lord is the superior being. And the method is based on how humanity worships. worships. He does it differently in the New Testament. Why? Where are all the false gods in the, in the New Testament? Why don't we hear about the gods of this nation, this nation, this nation, this nation? We won't even hear about the gods of the Romans or none of it. When you get to Acts a little bit, you hear like some worship of a particular god, but it's relatively absent when Jesus shows up. Where are all the false gods at? I mean, we know people still do it, but where are they at? What's going on? Where are all the gods? Why is it just Satan and demons? Why does he show up as a human being? Because this is the mode in which humanity worships. Let me explain. I don't have time to read this all, but in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verses 31 through 45, there was a, a, a vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, and it was of a statue. And the statue had different metal pieces and parts to it. And, and it was a tall statue and it describes each part, the chest, the arms, the thighs, the legs, the feet. And then there's another rock that shows up and hits that statue and knocks it down and crumbles it, right? And so Nebuchadnezzar goes to Daniel, and Daniel says, I can interpret the dream for you. And he interprets the dream. And the dream is about kingdoms, kingdoms of the world. It's real time, real history. The Bible plays out in real history. It's not like a, a cinematic universe that we read about. This is all human history, right? You know that, right? These are like folk tales, like, you know, you know, Zeus versus Heroditus. Like, this is not, this is all, and the fact that the Greeks, right, one of the most powerful nations in the world, it's all folklore to us. This all happens in human history. So the head of gold was the Babylonian Empire, and it was famous for its gardens and its, its beauty. It was known for wealth and splendor that was predominant in the 6th century. The Babylonian Empire was from 605 to 539. The chest of arms of silver was the Medes and the Persians from 539 to 331 BC. They took over after Babylon, and they were characterized by these divisions, Medes and Persians. That's why there's two arms. It's two different divisions. The belly and thighs of bronze is the Greek Empire. Napoleon, movie just came out about this dude. This is from 331 to 146 BC. Napoleon represents the Grecian Empire. It was huge, dominant, dominant in the fourth century BC. It was known for its cultural influences and rapid expansion. And after he died, Napoleon, it was divided into four parts that symbolizes the thighs. And because it was divided, Rome was the next world power to come in and crush him. So the legs of iron is Rome from 146 B.C. to 476 A.D. They were known for iron-like strength and military dominance. Rome was unlike any world power that we've seen to this day. The feet of iron clay, some think it's 
describing the divided, divided Rome in an uncertain future. And then the stone is obviously the kingdom of God. It knocks over all of those, that statue, and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So what does this mean? By the time Jesus shows up, the world is no longer about people groups that worship supernatural gods. That still happens. But the world is about world powers dominating. It's about kings, Caesars, kings. Even though the Greek and Romans have gods, people were in awe of kings. There was a worship of men, kings. Even the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come who would be a king like David. The world in Jesus' day and the mode in which humanity worships are kings. Case in point, Satan. In Matthew 4, we know this as the temptation of Christ. And in one of those temptations in verses 8 through 10, here's what he says to Jesus. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. What does he do? He shows them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Then Jesus said to him, Behold, be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and, shall, and, and only him shall you serve. So Satan tempts Jesus with all the kingdoms of the world because that's the way the world functions. It worshiped kings, and kings have kingdoms. Jesus rejects him, leaves, goes into the temple, and reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and then says this in Matthew 4, 17. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He does not say repent and believe in me. You know, he only says nine times in the Gospels that you should believe in him. And the majority of them are in the book of John. Most of the time, him and the disciples are saying repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did you know that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are not phrases found in the Old Testament? They're not. They do not show up until the New Testament. Why? Because the Old Testament was about supernatural beings. The Gospels are about kings and kingdoms because people worship kings and have kingdoms. So Jesus shows up and says, okay, I'm bringing a new kingdom into this world. So he introduces the kingdom of heaven. This is the way humanity worship. This is so true and so wild that the way that the Jewish leaders got Pilate to kill Jesus was because of this. Remember this in John 19, 12 through 16. Remember this. Don't make me laugh. He said this, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out. Listen, if you release this, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat. Interesting, funny, funny, right? You're sitting on the judgment seat in front of Jesus. That's intentional. God is intentional. Because at one point, it's going to switch. So he's sitting on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? 
The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Humanity worshiped kings. So Jesus said, okay, in this mode, I'm going to be a man because that's who humanity worships. And because they worship kings, I'm going to bring a kingdom because that's who humanity worships. And then at some point, people are going to call me the king of kings. God is intentional. Every detail matters. Some more than others. You know how many times Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? Why was the emphasis on king? Because that's who humanity worships. So Jesus says, ah, I'm a superior king. Superior king. In fact, or the crucifixion above Jesus' head, remember what it says? And they crucified him and divided his garments among them. This is Mark 15. Beginning of verse 24 32. Crucified his garments and divided them among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. It was mockery. Never has a joke been so true. Never has mockery been so accurate. And with him they crucified two of the robbers and so forth. And the people got upset. Don't say he's the king of the Jews, but he said he was the king of the Jews. And he said, I've written what I've written. Jesus' motive in Act 2, he's the person of emphasis, right? His theme is truth. His goal is to reclaim worship from humanity by showing that he is the superior king of all the other kings. So he's not killing people like they did in the Old Testament because you couldn't prove, God couldn't prove to people that he was the superior God unless he did destruction on the earth that they could see. But Jesus says, okay, now I'm here. You see me. Remember? The old, it said you can't even see God face to face and live. And then God decides, ah, you know what? Let's change. Let's become a human being. Let a lot of people see me. People would be talking about, oh, that's a second commandment violation if you like have a picture of Jesus up. Fam, Jesus showed up in person. There's a ton of people that saw him. That second command violation is for the birds. Now, I ain't saying the picture of what we see of Jesus is Jesus. You know, Isaiah says he's not a good-looking dude. The dude that we see could get any girl in this room. <laughs> Jesus is not supposed to be attractive, so that's not Jesus. I ain't saying that. That is a second commandment violation. <laughs> Jesus' motive was to demonstrate that he is the superior king. And the way, the method that he uses to destroy those gods is similar to the Old Testament. Remember, God chooses an an unlikely people group, right? So in the New Testament, God chooses an unlikely king. Remember when they came to to Nathan and said, hey, we found the one that they call the king of the, we found him. The one that they were talking about in the Old Testament, he's from Nazareth. What did he say? Nazareth? What good can come from Nazareth? Very much so. It's like Nazareth, God chooses an unlikely king from an unlikely town. And then he puts together an unlikely small group of people, 12 men. And then he says, okay, here's how we're going to do it. In the Old Testament, I took a small group of people and fought and killed them, destroyed the persona of them. Now in this act, I'm going to take a small group of people and destroy the power of them. So I'm going to give you power to cast out. Listen to this. Listen to this. Luke 9. Stay with me. Listen to what he says. Luke 9, 1 through 6. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. 
And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not have two eunuchs, and whatever you enter, and all of that. All right? They go in, and that's what he says. There's two missionary journeys, only two. One he sends out the 12, the other he sends out 72, same thing. I give you a power over the powers of darkness, because in this act, what I do, my method, is to take an unlikely group of people, give them power over the powers of darkness, to show that I am the superior power, the superior king. So they weren't killing people because that wasn't what they were supposed to do. In Act, in act 1, humanity worshiped God, so God keeps it supernatural. In Act 2, humanity worships human beings, kings. So Jesus shows up as a human being and says, all right, I'm bringing a kingdom. I reject all these kingdoms. I got a new kingdom. And the majority of the gospel is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. What about Acts 3? Acts to Jude, the Holy Spirit. Person of emphasis changes. The theme is grace. He reclaims glory from the cosmic powers of darkness by refocusing humanity's worship. And his motive is to prove that he is the superior spirit that should be worshipped. And he shows up as a spirit because that's the method of how humanity worships. That's the mode. If you think about today, if you look at each act, Act 1 was roughly 1,600 years, the Old Testament. Act 2 was really small. From Jesus' adulthood to that was roughly three years. Act 3 has been the longest, close to 2,000 years. How many people are worshiping like kings today? Relatively none. Relatively none. I'm sure there are people that do, but for the most part, it's not the primary mode of worship. Even in England, the queen and king, it's like they're like figureheads. People aren't worshiping the gods of these people in the Old Testament. They're still gods that people worship. You know, they say they worship Allah and different people, Buddha, whatever, but largely, we're dealing with spirits. Everything is about spirits. Spirit guides, being spiritual. That's why witchcraft is on the rise. Demons. It's all about getting close with the earth and these spirits and, and they mask it and hide behind these other names, but it's really just about spirits, worshiping spirits. In the Bible, we have spirits of divination, unclean spirits, evil spirits, spirit of fear, spirits of bondage, spirits of stupor, deceitful spirits, spirit of the Antichrist. So in Act 3, God says, okay, these people are going to worship spirits. I got that too. So I'm going to show up now as the spirit. I'm just going to be one. It's a bunch of y'all. Remember, Jesus casted out a ton of spirits out of one dude that made him strong. God said, ah, I'm just going to come in there and be strong on one. Casted out demons that went to 2,000 pigs. I'm one spirit. Y'all are all, y'all are, you know, I'm everywhere. One spirit, me. I am the superior spirit. And I'm going to teach people to worship me. So third act is the spirit. It still talks about Jesus. It talks about the Father, but it largely emphasis is the spirit's work. Why? Because that's the mode in which humanity worships. It's all about spirits, spiritual. And the spirit shows up in Acts. And once he shows up, things are different. Jesus said, look, I have to go because if I don't, the spirit doesn't come. And you need him to come because I can only be in one place at one time. So when the spirit comes, he'll be everywhere. 
and he'll tell you and remind you of what to think and do. Don't be afraid. Don't worry about these other spirits. When he comes, it's going, he's going to be different. It's going to change some things. And through the spirit, this small group of men and eventually women turned the world upside down so that today people in this room believe in Jesus. Because the spirit, spirit speaks. Y'all probably forgot the spirit speaks, right? Acts 8, 26 through 29. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, the south road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Here's the spirit's talking. They're making it clear. You know how sometimes, you ever thought the spirit was an it? Yeah. He's a, no, he's a he. Yeah. He's talking. Acts 10, 17 through 20. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. I have sent them. Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were, worship, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So the spirit says, okay, I know that spirits are going to be what is the mode of worship for the long haul. People aren't primarily worshiping kings. There's some other gods, but largely people are spiritual. Spirits are overtaking. Witchcraft is on the rise with all these different things on the rise. So the spirit, God says, okay, spirit, let's show up and show you the superior spirit. So the spirit does stuff like in 1 Corinthians 12. He gives gifts to distinguish between spirits. I'm going to show you I'm a superior spirit because I'm going to let some of y'all know how to distinguish between spirits. In James 3, he says that they talk about wisdom from above and wisdom from not. In verse 13, he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. You see how the language shifts? Now it's about discerning the spirit. How do we know? What did James, 1 John 4, test the spirits. Because it's the mode of worship. So the Holy Spirit comes, boom, here we are. So act one, God the Father, he destroys the persona of the gods. Act two, God the Son, he destroys the power of the gods. Act three, the spirit destroys the presence of the gods. We're changing, removing their influence from us. We call it sanctification. We call it being Christ-like. But he's removing the presence of 
of God. Of sinful worship. This is the Trinitarian Bible. And there's more that could be said, but time doesn't allow it. Be careful. Be careful what you think about your word. Be careful when you call it boring or you don't feel like reading. Be careful. This isn't just 66 books divided by two testaments. This is designed specifically by God to show how each person of the Godhead is interacting in humanity, not just for the benefit of us, but for his glory. It's showing us how God is overthrowing the gods in each particular act and how each person of the Trinity is doing it. Your Bible is not just a translation of something that God said years ago. It is specifically designed by God to show each of us how God is interacting in humanity, all three of them. And we need to respect it and cherish it because it's not just a book or an app. It is God himself explaining to us how he works. Treasure your Bible because if you don't, you'll treasure the gods of everything else. Man, I could say more, but I cannot. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just your word. Lord, there's just so much about your word. Every time I think, okay, I pretty much get it. I get it. Every time I feel like I figure it out, or you show me, so, oh, okay, I get it. Okay, wow, Lord, thank you. That's crazy. You probably laugh because you know, man, you ain't seen nothing yet. Lord, you know I don't teach these things to be impressive because I'm not. No one can even breathe unless you allow them to. So there's no boasting about any insights that we give because if you don't allow my mind to formulate thoughts, I can't make them anyway. This isn't about being impressive, and it's not about being suggestive. suggestive. This is about trying to help us continue to cultivate in awe of you and your word. You are so intentional that you interact in each different segment, which is, corresponds to human history. The Old Testament, you're a supernatural being. The New Testament, you're, you become a man. In the Gospels, and then later on, you become spirit. It's just crazy, Lord. And you're working, and in, in all the language shifts. It shifts to match each identity that you reveal yourself as, showing that you are the superior being of whatever mode humanity worships. If we worship supernatural beings, you're that. You're the supreme supernatural being. If we worship kings, you're the supreme king. If we worship spirits, you're the supreme spirit. May this encourage our souls and may this embolden us to stand firm for your word. And may it embolden us to tell others to take back, to, to destroy the power and the presence of spirits, of the gods and other people. Help us to do that for your glory and our good. Man, Lord, there was so much more that could be said, but thank you for what I was allowed to say in this moment. In your name we pray.
Amen. Somebody get me a water. I, I was about to drink this, but it was already open, and I just don't know. I don't go remember drinking it. So go ahead and bless it right quick. And yeah, I, I, God made dirt, but don't, don't hurt, but drinking is something else. It could be COVID in here. Did you? But you gave it to me open, brother. Like, you got to remember where I'm from. All right, we have a few questions. Ready to get into them? Yeah, let's go. All right, um, so uh, this person asks, how do your acts, um, you know, your paradigm of acts, yeah. uh, compare with uh, the doctrine of dispensationalism? Uh, dispensationalism is a totally different framework. So I'm not introducing a framework with that, that's connected to a, uh, um, I'm not introducing this as a hermeneutical grid to understand the Bible as much as, I'm just explaining how this works. Dispensationalism is a whole other hermeneutical grid that really is more about, it's not even about so there's these six dispensations or maybe seven, depending on who you ask, and it's how God interacts with humanity through those dispensations. Cool. I don't always see them, but I think the, the issue I have with dispensationalism largely is that the way they view Israel in the Old Testament in terms of, I just don't agree with that. So what I'm saying has nothing to do with Israel. Dispensationalism is really about Israel and God's plan for Israel. That's not what I'm talking about. So it's a whole different scheme. That's about God's plan for Israel. Revelation is a seven-year period that's about Israel's salvation, the church's rapture. I don't believe none of that. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. And that, was, that theology didn't even come up until the late 19th, 20th century, early 20th century. So, I mean, so dispensationalism is something else altogether. I don't want to explain all the tenets of it, but that's more about how literal interpretation of the scripture that sees Israel, promises to Israel, is still needing to be fulfilled. That's not how I read the Bible. What I presented was just a framework to show you that God's working in these three ways, regardless of whether you think Israel is this or that. What I taught has nothing to do, it doesn't rival dispensationalism, and I, and I try to show biblically these are why I'm saying this, and this is what it means. So that'd be, that's a good question, but dispensationalism is a whole framework that I just I don't agree with. Thank you. Um, in John 4, 23 uh, through uh, 24, where, where Jesus announces to the woman at the well that the time is coming where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Um, do you think that's uh, Jesus announcing or foreshadowing the acts, the spirit's acts in the Bible? I think 100%. Yeah. So, so you have to remember this, right? And I said this, I think, last week, but just remember this. Whenever you read the Gospels, the stories, we read them as if they're happening, right? They wrote these 30, 40 years later, right? So they're thinking, so all the spirit, all the stuff has already happened. When they write the gospel, they didn't write it as it happened. They're writing it decades later. So when they're describing things like the spirit and all that, the Holy Spirit is reminding them, hey, Jesus was saying little stuff about me along the way. Y'all didn't understand what he was saying, but now let me show you, oh, this is what I was meaning. So when you read the Bible, it's not written as it's happening, those stories. It's looking back. And, and all the spirit, all that stuff has come. So they're, they're writing, basically knowing the end of the story and then explaining it to everyone from the beginning so people believe. So when Jesus says that stuff, it's not chronological to understanding. It's them looking back and realizing, oh, it was there already. It was there. Okay, it was there in the first place. It was already there. It was already there. 
All right. Um, thank you for that. Um, many uh, Christian thinkers say that the main form of idolatry common in our world today is the worship of money, image, or success. Um, as it relates to, you know, idolatry and the gods of this age, do you think, uh, what do you think about that? Do you agree with that or think it's too metaphorical? Well, I mean, I, I agree in the sense that Jesus said, look, you can't serve two masters, right? You can't worship God and money, right? So that's there. You see that and you get a lot of warnings to the rich, like woe to those of you who are rich. I agree with that. But Jesus also calls this like a spirit of the age, right? Mm -hmm. Or the spirit of the Antichrist. So it's not like, I, I do think if there are demons of consumerism and materialism, then I think they're definitely in America. I mean, the American dream is 100% connected to materialism and consumerism. That's why people, come, people don't come to America because for no reason they come because it's the land of opportunity, right? It's you can come here with an idea, with no education, and become a millionaire. People come to America because we want to experience materialism. So I think that that's, I think a spirit is that, it's not like materialism is just happening on its own, right? There's some supernatural force because we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. There is a supernatural force at work. Just, I don't think there's a, I don't know, there's no demon in the Bible, the demon of consumerism, right? But it definitely, you have to remember, anything that rivals ultimate allegiance and worship of God is demonic. Right. Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan, when Peter said, hey, you're not going to die, Lord, far be it from you. And Peter was saying it because he loved the Lord. And he said, get behind me, Satan. I mean, it, it, so to God, like, if you even think slightly off of what my plan is, it's satanic. So consumerism and all that stuff is 100%. Because many people, even Christians, are so fascinated with, like, money. Like, I got to do this, I got to do this. I got to get the bag, I got to do this, I got to do that. For what? To what end? Okay, cool, but then what? Then what? Then what happens? I'm, I'm going to be generous and all that. People be, I don't see. I mean, I see a lot of people that want to get the money, and then they be like, let me show up in this Maybach real quick. Let me get this. Let me show up like this. And it's like, for what? So you have success. How does that translate to eternity? Jesus had warned against the rich, and you got so many people thinking, I got to be rich to be successful. So you rich, but you immature in the Lord. What does that mean? What does that mean? I'd rather be broke and know God. I mean, what? The rich man and Lazarus, right? Lazarus was poor, but now he's in Abraham's bosom. The rich dude was like, hey, can you just dip your finger in the tip of the, because it's, I mean, I'm not saying don't try to be successful and don't try to set things up. Ain't nothing wrong with that. But our priorities have to be, we have to remember we're fighting against the, we're going against the grain. Right? That's how we say in the hood, man, you're going against the grain. You are going against the grain. If you think I'm trying to be successful in the way that the worldly people define it, and you're not going to be effective. You're not going to be effective because to be really successful, you got to sacrifice some of this. Unless you're a trust fund baby, which I don't know everybody in this room, but I don't got y'all being a trust fund. And if you are, look, come by and watch the game today. Let's talk. <laughs> See, even I'm affected by it, right? I, so I just think, yeah, I think there, I think materialism and stuff is real. Uh, I, I, but I still think it's all the spirit of this age. It's all the, uh, uh, a sort of a spiritual sense that we should be drawn to this instead of drawn to God. It's all of it. Love is the same thing. People compromise because of love. Compromise. Compromise because of love. Do wild stuff because they want to be in relationships with love. Wild stuff. Compromise. Some people don't even come back from the faith. For what? For that? Like it's just there's no love in the world that's worth the, the eternity. 
There's no dollar amount in the world that's worth eternity. But everybody thinks they're exempt, though, so you just got to be careful because you're not exempt. Everybody thinks they're exempt. Now, I ain't going to do that. Like, I'm going to go ahead, man, whatever, bro. You ain't been to this meeting. You ain't been to church. You ain't been to this. You ain't done that. You're doing this. You're doing that. You withdrawn from people. It's like, that ain't the Lord to me, so I just think we have to be careful. I mean, if, you got, if you're going to do it, do it, but be careful because I'll, we're not as strong as we think. We're not as strong as we think. Don't be fooled. The enemy is sharper than you. He will lure you, and he's patient. That dude is a farmer. Man, he'll sow a seed, he'll drop a seed years ago, and just wait till that joint develops. He'll drop a seed, boom, this person says something that you didn't like, and you'll just hold on to that thing. Won't even know it. And then five years later, you can't stand him. <laughs> You've been there, huh, bro? You can't. Well, all of us been there. It's a few people that's like, man, it's a dude I can't stand. I, I just sit when he comes around so much I can't stand him. But like, so, a little late. I'll be on Thursday night at the comedy club down on K Street. Come through. Pull up. I just said, he sows a seed, and you don't even know it. And then that's what, all of a sudden you can't figure out how you got here. We're not as sharp as we think. We got to be careful. So, yeah, I think that's true, but I still think it's all about spirit of the age, these things. And so we have the Holy Spirit to remind us, hey, be careful. You're not as mature as you think, fam. So earlier in your uh, message that you were, you know, basically running us through, like, the supernatural storyline, you uh, mentioned how other beings were responsible for these geographic areas. So this question uh, says, if, if there are beings who are respons were responsible to guide us away from sin based on their assigned jurisdiction, how should we process giving an account to the Lord at the end? Would the beings and myself give an account for the sins I commit? That's a very good question. And so I think Revelation 20, 11 through 15 answers it, right? So you get the great judgment seat, right? And it says the books are open and the book of life is open. And everyone, great or small, will be judged by what was written in the books. And if your name's not written in the book of life, you are what? Thrown into the lake of burning fire, right? But who else is thrown in there? Satan, the false prophet, the beat. So all those, they're all thrown in there too. So... You're going to give an account for what you did because even Adam and Eve, it wasn't like they had to listen to Satan. Right. Listen, we all, we, in the next couple of weeks as we go get back to like the specifics of the, the schemes of the devil, every sin that we commit is about entitlement. If you really want to know why you sin, it's not because it's just in some way, shape, or form, you justified giving in to this sin. The goal is to find out, how did I justify doing this? What thoughts did I believe that allowed me to explode in anger? What thoughts did I believe that allowed me to be sexually immoral? What thoughts did I believe that allowed me to lie or talk behind somebody's back? What, it, it's all entitlement. It's all we find. Wait. And so I forgot what I was saying while I was saying this, because I'm in a different zone. But anyway, <laughs> I'm just mad the commanders aren't playing right now. We got that second pick, though, but. Um, yeah, we do. I think you, you, what you were Actually, doing. Actually, we got five of the first 100. So the I, first I love it. New, do two. New GM. See the new GM? Yes, sir. Hey, brother. Yes, sir. I'm waiting for the head coach. Yes, Don't touch the Lord's anointed. Hey, listen, so. <laughs> I can't believe pastors say that and be serious. The Lord's anointed. You ain't anointed, man. 
That was David, bro. You ain't David. You ain't anointed. No test of the Lord's anointed. Dudes be quoting the Old Testament like it applies to them. It's crazy to me. That's why they be swallowed up. All right, what's the other one? Go I'm ahead, sorry, Lord, man. forgive go me. Ahead, go ahead, man. <laughs> stop, Lord. I'm sorry. God forgives. That's what he said. <laughs> the Lord knows my heart. There's grace for that, right? The Lord knows my heart. That statement is the, is the quintessential, I don't respect grace for what it stands for. That's a different message. Let me know. Go ahead. So uh, this question uh, goes like this. After we fall into sin, are we giving in to the devil by dwelling on our sin and keeping on thinking about it, even though when we think about it, we regret it. Um, if not, what should our mindset be after sin? Okay, so if I'm understanding what you're asking, and if you are here and I'm not, and this isn't the right response, then please get to me. When I hear that, I think the two categories in 2 Corinthians 7 mm -hmm. of worldly guilt and godly sorrow, right? So what we call conviction and condemnation. So con condemnation is a guilt that sins, feels bad, and gives up. Conviction is a guilt that sins and feels bad but gets up, right? So there can be, we can react to our sin in very negative ways, morbid introspection, woe is me, that can actually remove us from God. If you're in that place, you have to remember one thing. Like, the Lord, so I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say this. Remember in, when, when God told Samuel, right, Saul had sinned, and he was, and Samuel was, like, blown. He was upset. And so God said to choose, he was going to choose David, and he said that David was a man after his own heart, right? Right? Now, there's two, two things. Either God doesn't know the future, or God knows something else that we don't know. Because when he said that, after that, David committed adultery, had sex with a woman, then had her husband killed so that he could hide it. Now, most people in this room have never done that. It would never, as a matter of fact, I don't think anybody in this room has done that, unless I don't know very well. Talk to me afterwards. <laughs> right? Actually, there are people in hell that did less than that. There are people in hell that have never done that. So how can God say Daniel's a man after his own heart, even though he committed some of the most grievous sin in the Bible? Because God knows who really loves him. And even though sometimes we struggle with sin, it doesn't necessarily mean the absence of love for God. We have to be careful to not think that God's like, he knows my heart so I can sin, because he cannot be mocked. He knows the difference between you taking advantage of grace and you struggling to apply it. But it's not like in and of itself, your sin is somehow like, oh, that's it. It's a wrap for you. It's like if that's the case, then how did David do it? No, God can look past that and recognize they're going to struggle, but they love me. And so I think we need to recognize, I said this in my core group, that Christianity is not sin management. It's love management, right? Jesus connects obedience to love. If you love me, obey my commands. It's not if you, you, you obey my command. No, if you love. So we, we treat Christian 
be moral and not love God at all. That's what the Pharisees were. So we, we treat Christianity like it's sin management, like, oh, okay, I got to. No, it's about love management. How do you cultivate growing in love towards God? Because once you do that, then you want to sin less. Right? You love God. I don't want to do this because I love God. We get it backwards. We're trying to do all, oh, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop watching Netflix. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And then we don't have any real foundation for why we're doing it because we're supposed to. But we have to attach that to, man, I'm trying to grow in my love for God. Christian, it's not sin management. God can look past your sin and be like, yeah, they messed up and there are consequences for it, but I know this person loves me. I've done, we've all done that. It's not, it's love management. I think many of us just don't know how do we grow in our love for God, and the reason why is because of the means of grace that which God provides us, we're bored of. The Bible is boring to us. It's optional. Prayer is boring to us. It's optional. And therefore, then we find ourselves wanting to grow, but we can't because the way that God said, this is how you interact with me, this is the relationship. Like, if you're married and you tell your spouse, I love you, but you never spend time with them, never talk to them, never hang around them, at some point, something's going to click. If you say you're in a relationship with God and you love him, but you never read, you never pray, you never sacrifice, you don't deny yourself because you love him, is he supposed to be like, hey, I knew your heart, though. <laughs> I mean, the problem is he does know our heart. That's the problem. So I, I think when we're processing that, yeah, you want to go after it, but I don't think anyone should be morbidly introspective. But we need to take it seriously. There should be some time of reflection on why did I do this? How did I give into this? And how, what did I believe? How did I justify doing this? You do not sin unless you agree to do so. How did I, what lies did I believe that allowed me to do this? And that's what I need to go after the next time I hear that lie. The next time I'm tempted to think that way, that's how we grow. But if you don't want to do that work, then we just don't grow. It's not, it's not rocket science. It's just effort. It's just effort. It just takes work. So, so I think, yeah, there's, but conviction, conviction in a believer will, will be, will feel bad, but then we're going to keep going, though. We're going to be like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to do this again. I don't want to, and it's not just because of the consequences. Conviction doesn't need consequences. It doesn't. Conviction doesn't need consequences. I'm not saying consequences don't affect it, but conviction does not need it. I can sin in ways that nobody knew about it, and I'm blown. I'm grieved. I'm crying out to the Lord because I did this. I said this. I thought this. I don't need some major to happen for me to see it. But I think we shouldn't think that the lack of consequences means nothing. It's not worth going after it, though, either. So we'll get into all that. The next couple weeks, we're going to get into all the specifics. We're hitting everything from anger to all of it. We're going to hit all of it. So as it related to uh, back, you know, when there was more jurisdictional uh, interaction with uh, the gods, um, was there any chance that people from another god group would want to come to the true God, the Most High, and would the Most High allow them to come to him? Well, sure. I mean, that's what the book of Jonah, right? So the Ninevites, right, even though Jonah's gospel presentation was lacking, I mean, that, that's how you know God saves. He told Jonah, hey, look, I need you to go to the Ninevites, right? And Jonah was like, oh, man, that's the last people I want. Be honest, there's a couple people you don't want to be blessed. There's a few people in your life you don't want to be blessed. Repent now. So Jonah left was like, nah, man, I ain't doing it. Then he got on the boat, and the Lord was like, man, do you know I'm the superior supreme being? Man, I, 
So he rocked the boat. Jonah was like, look, it's me, man. Throw me overboard. They was like, you sure? He was like, throw me overboard. They threw him overboard. Big fish swallowed him up, right? So then, I mean, that's, that's true, that's true. And so then, <laughs> swallowed him up. He swallowed him. He was in a time of swallowing. So look, so then the fish spits Jonah back out. And he goes to Nineveh to preach the gospel, and here was his message. Nineveh will be destroyed in 40 days. Deuces. And then he goes to sit down and wait for it to happen. And then is mad at God because he saved him. And God said to him, bro, what you? First, do you think I'm not going to care about 140,000 people? And they're like, I care, like, I care about these people. So even though it wasn't Israel's primary role in the Old Testament, most certainly God was drawing people to himself. But it was, it was progressive revelation. It didn't, it didn't happen until the crucifixion. Once the crucifixion hit, then it was like, okay, everybody come. But there were, there were definitely moments where people converted. I mean, Rahab was a Rahab. prostitute. She's in the lineage of Christ, right? So you got people. Ruth, you got, you, got, you got people that obviously God had that in mind. I mean, Jesus said, look, I got sheep that are not in this fold. They're going to hear my voice, too. So, yeah, I, so I think in the Old Testament, yeah, you could switch, but you don't see, besides the Ninevites, a large people group leaving, you know, Dagon, you know what I'm saying, and going to worship Yahweh. You just don't see it. But it, it was possible because the Ninevites, and they were vicious people, too. It wasn't like they were nobody. They were kind of brutal. So, so Jonah's a funny story, man. God is a patient God. He gave him a vine and then took it from him, man. He was mad. And God said, why are you mad about the vine? It wasn't yours. I took it from you. That's funny to me. These uh, last two questions are, <clears throat> uh, I'm surprised there weren't more questions about this, but um, specifically about Israel today. So uh, the first one is, is Israel still God's chosen people after Acts 2? God's chosen people? Yes. I think no. Let me tell you why. The whole point of Ephesians 3 that Paul says, Paul says the mystery of the ages. He calls it the mystery of the ages. Paul doesn't, he says the mystery of the ages. That's a big claim. And you know what it was? That the Gentiles are included into the plan of salvation. It wasn't the mystery of the ages is that God is, became incarnate. No, it was the mystery of the ages is that the Gentiles are included into salvation. Right? That was a part of it from the beginning. If we want to be technical, if we want to be technical, I taught this in Romans. We want to be technical. So two of the, the 12 tribes of Israel were two of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, right? Okay, Manasseh and Ephraim were Joseph's sons in Egypt. He was married to an Egyptian woman, and their mother was half Egyptian and then half Jew, okay, Jewish, right? Because Joseph comes from Abraham, right? So two of the tribes of Israel begin already with Gentile, half Gentile. They already begin that way, right? They already start off not fully ethnically Jewish because they were half Egyptian. Then when you get to Exodus 12, it says that the Israelites left, right? And it makes this disclaimer. Uh, oh, man. What's the disclaimer? It's like other uh, mixed multitude. A mixed multitude left with them. So a mixed multitude left. That means not ethnically Jewish people. That means... Some Egyptians left, and some Moses went to uh, Ethiopia. They, they all left, right? And, and who did God make a covenant with at Exodus, at Mount Sinai? He didn't say, okay, all the people that are descendants of Abraham over here, 
and the other people there, no, he made a covenant with all the people that came. That includes a mixed multitude. So it was always, it was always a mixed multitude from the beginning. That's the mystery of the ages. So I think, yeah, Israel was that because God created this nation from Abraham, but it was always a mixed multitude from the beginning. So I think to elevate Israel to the status to which some people do, I just think is an un, I just think it's, the, it's, it's not an accurate way to, I think, process uh, Israel as a nation. Thank you, sir. Finally, um, do you think that the fighting, do you think God is fighting other gods is playing out now in Gaza? Oh, I think 100%. Did y'all see that video? With a dude, it was an older dude, an uh, uh, Arab dude. Did you see that? No, I showed you that video. You sent it to me, right? Man, this dude was in this big, like, United Nations Council building, right? And he was like, the God of the Jews. Basically, he said, Allah is going to punish the Jews, and the God of the Jews can do nothing about it, and they will understand who Allah is. As soon as he finished, he dropped dead right there. I'm talking about, I can send you the text. I'll put it in the thing. He dropped dead right away. People got up and rushed to him. And I just watched it and thought, not my God, bro. There are times when God's like, we're going to ask five around here. We Ananias and Sapphira today. You ain't going to talk tough about me. Do all that. Most times I let it go, but every once in a while, I'm going to show you I'm the superior being. Allah is too small for me. So that dude dropped dead. Boom. They was like, oh, my gosh, what happened? He ain't died no old age. He was vibrant when he said that. He was vibrant. He died of old sin. So, so yeah, I think it's playing out. I don't think God against the gods has ended. I mean, do you know Revelation, right? Revelation, actually, the funny thing about Revelation, this is why, another reason why I'm not a dispensation. Revelation is not all future. Revelation is looking at human history. Some of it hasn't happened yet. But how does the serpent stand in front of the woman the dragon ready to devour it, which is everyone, everyone believes that that narrative is talking about the birth of Jesus. The woman is not actually married, but the 12 tribes of Israel giving birth to Jesus. So like that's already happened. So like the revelation is not the book of the future. Revelation is a book of human history taught in prophetic language. Some of it we get, some of it we don't. Some has already happened. Some is going to happen. And that's the reality. It's not a future book. It's a right now book with some future elements to it. So that's why, now, you know, I don't want to say nothing else. I don't want to say nothing else. Is that it? That's all we got? All right, I don't want to say that. Because no. I respect everybody. I just don't believe everybody. And I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But you got to show me from the Bible where I'm wrong. Don't just tell me how you feel. All right. If you are a genuine believer then you are, you are there, there's a part of our Sunday service where all of it's devoted to the Lord, but then there's one aspect where God himself says you have to be a believer to participate in this part. So all other aspects of our service, everyone can participate in. But this one act that we call communion, the Bible calls it the Lord's Supper, is, is an act that Jesus said is reserved for those who remember his sacrifice. And it, not remember like I remember that it happened, but I'm living in light of that memory. Uh, 2 Corinthians, it tells us that you bring judgment upon yourself if you are not a believer and you participate in this. So if you're not a Christian, you do not need to be ashamed. There would have been, at some point in my life, there would have been Sundays where I, had to, I couldn't do this because I wasn't yet a believer. I didn't believe, I didn't want to, I didn't understand enough. 
So this one aspect of, this, of our service, we'd ask you not to participate in. But if you have questions about what does it mean to believe and any questions about what was said today or anything, I'll be here for a little while and others, Mike will be here and other people will be here. This is for those of us who do believe. Having said that, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the most high God, remember what this means. We wouldn't know what this meant if we didn't read it in his word. So his word is important for us to know what this means. This is a memory for us that we are reminded that Jesus gave his life, that his body was broken on the cross. This isn't, this is just a, a representation for something much deeper and much joyful. Sadness and sorrow all, s sorrow and joy come together in one moment on the cross where his body was broken. So when we do this, we do this in light of that memory, but in light of our remembering the future. That act prepared the future for us. And so we're not just remembering the past, we're remembering the future when we take this. So Father, we thank you for just your sacrifice, your word, your, the cross. We thank you that you became a man, showing that you are the superior king, because that's who humanity worshiped. And now you're described as the king of kings. Because you are. You were that before the cross, but you're now definitely that because of it. So I just, I just ask Lord, that you would be glorified as we remember today, not just what you did back then, but we remember the implications that that has on our lives for the future. Remembering that moment is remembering the future where we stand before you and are welcomed into, your, into eternity with you. So as we eat this together, Lord, be glorified and help us to be sanctified. Let's eat. And Lord, we drink this because your blood was spilled on our behalf. It was your blood, the true Lamb of God, that took away the sins of the world. So Jesus, we thank you. And we eat this, even though we do this every week, it never feels familiar. By your grace, it is a reminder of the past and to remember the future. So when we drink, we drink this for your glory. Let's drink together. And Lord, thank you for our church. I thank you for the community that you've given us. Thank you for the way you open our minds up to think and understand. Thank you for the many, many faithful men and women in this room. We are all flawed, but faithfulness doesn't lack flaws. Flaws accompany faithfulness. And there are many of us, Lord, who are trying to be faithful, but we're flawed. So I pray, Lord, that you would, through these messages, through our understandings of the Bible, through what we're going to hear the next couple months as we deal, the next, as we deal with each a particular issue, help us to recognize the schemes of the devil by your spirit of grace so that we can grow for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Members of the church, don't forget Saturday is a meeting. It's an adult meeting only. Uh, so your kids cannot come to that meeting, especially if they're teenagers. Um, but, but that's at 11 o'clock. Please make sure you're there. Make whatever arrangements you need to. If you need to talk to us to work through something, please do that.